Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Alan Buchan, Communications and Insights Assistant at AMBA. I had the pleasure of speaking to Shet Mahar, who's EVP of Global Sales at BetterWorks. I had the opportunity to talk to him about the past, present and future of sales, as well as what makes a great salesperson. He also spoke about being a self-described servant leader and how he uses that philosophy to coach his team to success. Finally, he gives some great tips for any future leaders and for anyone wanting to get into sales. Here's that conversation. Right, so thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your career, please? Sure. Uh, well, my name is Shep Maher. I'm the uh, EVP of Global Sales at BetterWorks currently. And in terms of my career arc, I've spent most of my career in sales with a brief stint uh, of coaching and teaching. And uh, so I did uh, sales for a wonderful financial research firm when I was in college. It was one of my many part-time jobs in college uh, as, I, as I worked my way through college. And uh, after uh, graduation, I did that full time for a bit, but I was really passionate about teaching and coaching. I had some great experiences um, personally uh, in terms of really informing my character and um, growing up with uh, great coaches and teachers. And so I uh, quit my job and went back home to Massachusetts and uh, ended up teaching and coaching for a short stint. I really, really loved it. Um, but it also helped clarify that I uh, also loved certain aspects of sales that I hadn't realized um, I loved as much. And, and one of the things that I really love about sales is the meritocracy. Um, there's not a lot of politics in sales. Uh, it's very, very clearly performance oriented. Your name goes on a board. And if you perform well, then you potentially have opportunities for advancement or earning more money or um, uh, moving into different roles. And if you don't, then uh, at the end of the day, there's uh, there's no room on the team for you uh, as long as you have a team of high performers. So I love that element of sort of high accountability, high responsibility and really clear transparency on um, on performance. And that was a little harder to get in um, in teaching and coaching. It was still there in, in, in certain ways. But um, I ended up getting back into sales, joining a startup in Boston. We had a great run. <clears throat> and um, we I got moved out to San Francisco, out to the West Coast in 1999 at the height of the sort of first dot-com boom. So very, very exciting time to be out West. Um, and I've been out West in technology sales uh, ever since. Amazing. Um, I really want to get um, back into some of your like, kind of thoughts of sales, but um, I was just wondering what your company does and what you do in your role right now. Sure. So at BetterWorks, we're on, we're on a mission to do a couple of things. One is to uh, really spread the gospel of OKRs, objectives and key results, which um, was really first brought to prominence by uh, John Doerr. Uh, and Andy Grove uh, at Intel. And uh, John Doerr introduced OKRs to Google and Amazon and a number of other companies that he invested in um, at Kleiner Perkins and were really, really instrumental in helping those companies uh, grow into the juggernauts that they are today. 
So uh, OKR is a, a fantastic management methodology. It helps companies focus on the big rocks. Uh, it helps drive great alignment, uh, commitment, transparency. It helps companies stretch um, and understand that uh, shooting for a really lofty goal and falling somewhat short of it is not a fireable offense. So it's a great, great methodology, um, especially for certain profiles of companies that are interested in growth, in innovation, and in getting more focused and aligned. Um, and the other thing that we're uh, on a mission to do is help companies understand that if you want to accomplish great things using a management methodology like OKRs, in today's day and age, you can't do that without bringing your human capital with you. <clears throat> it's not... Um, Something that you can set up in the boardroom and just decide at a very senior level that you're going to change your management methodology. You actually have to bring uh, individual contributors, team leaders, managers with you on that journey. And so historically, what has happened is performance management has usually been handled by HR and it's usually been pretty separate from uh, the key objectives and goal setting that a company does. And you see that reflected in surveys by great organizations like Deloitte and Gallup, where most employees, in fact, sometimes upwards of 75% of employees at world-class companies will say they have no idea how their work ties to their top company objectives. And in many cases, they don't even know what those top company objectives are. So they work really, really hard uh, and they're uh, very, very focused on doing well, but they don't necessarily know how, um, how their work ties in. That leads to a lack of engagement. And at the end of the day, if you have an employee experience that is disengaged or uh, less than optimized, then that has downstream impacts like, for example, a less than optimal customer experience. Um, so what we're trying to do is help companies understand that the uh, previously sort of separate realms of strategy, goal setting, objective setting, and performance management with your talent and your people actually belong together uh, and can be done together. And when they are done together, then they can actually reinforce each other and become a very, very powerful way to uh, both develop your talent more effectively and achieve your business objectives. Well, I'm really shocked by that statistic of 75% not knowing what the overall kind of objective was. Um, so I was having, a, I hope you don't mind, but I was having a little stock of your LinkedIn before we started speaking. And I noticed that you described yourself as a servant leader. And I was just wondering if you'd tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, no, no problem. Uh, uh, looking at my LinkedIn profile at all. I think that's why we, we all have, uh, have those profiles out there. It gives us an opportunity to share a little bit of our, you know, not just our career, but hopefully our, our personal selves with, uh, with others. Uh, you, you know, servant leader is a term that I sort of, um, happened across accidentally, um, not too long after I moved out to California. And I think it does tie back to my experience, um, teaching and coaching. And I think that, uh, teachers, uh, and great teachers and great coaches are actually great servant leaders. 
Um, what I realized when I first got into sales management, I, I, I really wasn't very good at it. I, I think it was a classic case of somebody being put into management um, because they had some success in a, in a sales role. And sometimes the skills that made you successful in an individual contributor role uh, are not the skills that make you successful in a management role. So it was, it was a tough adjustment for me. Uh, but eventually I started to figure it out and started to figure out some different things that made uh, me successful and made my my team successful. And uh, the interesting thing was that the key uh, was really focusing on each individual on my team and trying to understand what that individual needed. And the things they needed were very, very different. Um, you know, you had, you might have a, you know, a high performer over here who uh, can, you know, bring deals in very reliably, but can be, you know, abrasive internally. Uh, you might have a mid-level performer over here who's, you know, really conscientious and empathetic and spends too much time, um, you know, responding to every single deal, even ones that should be qualified out. And if you look across the spectrum of that team, what you realize is that that there isn't one size fits all. There isn't one sort of technique that you need to, you know, teach to everybody. You really got to uh, look at each individual and help them get what they need to remove their the, the obstacles that are getting in their way. And, and sometimes those obstacles are actually aspects of themselves or, or their approach. And when you do that, when you actually sort of put yourself in that role of serving them, um, then uh, all of a sudden your team performance improves. And we ended up um, with a, a, a team that was a, you know, satellite office headquarters were back on the East coast and, and it has historically not been the top performing team. And we ended up as the top performing team. And as I sort of reflected on that, it was the key was becoming a servant leader to those individuals and helping them, get what they needed to get better. And when I did that, my, my success followed. Um, one, one key about that servant leader term is it doesn't mean that you're a pushover. You just come in and sort of say, you know, Hey, what do you guys need? Can I get you coffee? <clears throat> you really have to challenge and push people. Sometimes, sometimes being a servant leader involves helping somebody look at something uh, that is in themselves that is really difficult to see or admit. Or, or you help somebody change a really deeply ingrained habit that has made them successful thus far in their career, but won't take them to the next level. So it's not um, uh, servant. The word servant can be misconstrued. Uh, it does not mean that you're, you know, soft or a pushover. Uh, it can mean that sometimes you you put people in really uncomfortable uh, situations and challenge them and push them more than they ever have been. Um, but at the end of the day, you're doing it in service of helping them advance their career, increase their earnings, uh, get to the next level, uh, et cetera. I think it's really interesting that you said that all of your team look like quite different. And I think in sales, you can sometimes have a kind of a stereotype of the person who's get into that kind of industry. And I was wondering if you think there's any kind of qualities that make someone a great salesperson or could anyone be a great salesperson um, fostered in the right way? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I think it is, um, you know, I, I, I started my sales career in the, in the late 90s. And I think at that time, you know, I can remember reading an article in Business Week, um, which is now owned by Bloomberg. It was about the EMC sales force, which at the time was really one of the, you know, premier sales force, uh, sales forces out there. And uh, they had interviewed somebody there and they said the key to this, their success was that they hired um, college hockey players. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I think that probably started a, a run on college hockey, ice hockey. Uh, sorry for my uh, uh, um, uh, folks across the pond uh, as, a, as opposed just to field hockey. But in any case, athletes, competitive athletes. And, and I think that is an example of a um, I don't want to say stereotype, but sort of an archetype that uh, people look for in sales. They go, oh, well, if they were an athlete, then they're competitive. They're probably used to hard work, balancing a schedule. You know, let's go hire athletes. And, and there is some truth to that. But I think the truth is is more nuanced. And that is if you went out and hired a team full of college athletes, what you would end up with often is a pretty homogenous group of people. And what the weakness is with a homogenous group of people is you start to narrow the gene pool and nature teaches us that that is not good. Uh, and the other thing that happens is you reduce your framework and your fabric for uh, decision-making and problem-solving. If you have a lot of people with a very similar background and a similar set of experiences, then when you're faced with uh, an interesting challenge, you're gonna have a lot of people with a very similar perspective. And when you create a team that is really diverse in terms of background and ethnicity and upbringing and education background and work experience, what you end up is a with is a much richer um, fabric for problem solving and a much richer set of perspectives and possible solutions. And I definitely have seen that over my career. I really deeply believe that building a diverse sales team in terms of those things like experience sets and perspective uh, is the best way to actually build a high performing sales team, because then people have a greater uh, incident of learning from each other. And at the end of the day, sales is problem solving. So I, I think there's a tendency to sort of picture this like archetype um, and it can be dangerous because you can overlook really, really talented people. Um, and at the end of the day, there are qualities. I've spent a lot of time identifying attributes that I believe are um, key to success in sales, but they don't, um, they're not one size fits all. I'll give you an example for me. Courage and resiliency are really key elements uh, that are leading indicators of success in sales. And you can have courage and resiliency. You can show courage and resiliency by, let's say, being an exchange student who you know comes from a foreign country and moves to a different country and uh, decides to stay in that country and grow their career there. Leaving your family, your comfort zone, your network, everything behind takes an incredible amount of self-reliance, courage and resiliency. And so someone like that, even if they don't have, you know, like 
college athletics or, you know, what have you, or, or fit the typical profile of what you think of as a salesperson can end up being an exceptional salesperson. So I think you have to look a little bit deeper um, and really be committed to trying to build a, a, a team of diversity. But when you do, you can end up getting better results. It sounds like your kind of image of or the kind of sales industry image of what a salesperson should look like has changed and um, since you've been working in the industry. Um, but I was wondering on like a broader scale, since you entered the industry and in, I think you said in nineteen in the late nineteen nineties, has the industry changed significantly? And can you tell me a little bit how it has? Yeah, I think um, there there are several ways that that sales has changed over the years. I think that um, you know there's a wonderful book if uh, anyone's looking for a recommendation uh, written by Daniel Pink. Uh, the title is "To Sell Is Human," and I think that um, what has happened with sales over time is there's been a, a couple of interesting trends. One is access to information has fundamentally changed. Right. So so probably the you know, the best example of that would be going to buy a, a car. Uh, it used to be that if you went to buy a car, you sort of saw the sticker price on the window and you knew that uh, if you said yes to that, you were going to get screwed. And so you had to negotiate down from that. But other than that, you didn't have a lot of information. Right. Uh, much less what what the heck your used car was worth if you wanted to trade it in. And now you can literally go online, you know, take pictures of your car, upload them to, you know, a website, enter the mileage uh, and the VIN number. And, you know, you get information back with what your car would be worth if you traded it in, what your car would be worth if you sold it in a private sale. Um, and uh, not only that, but the car you're interested in buying, you can get, you know, an incredible amount of information for, you know, what it's worth and how much below MSRP uh, you should buy it for. So, that, so it, sales has changed in that, you know, the salesperson maybe in the past held a lot of information that the buyer didn't have access to. Now the buyer <laughs> has access to all of the information and sometimes more information than the seller might have. Uh, and I think that that's changed the dynamic. The concept of like a pushy, aggressive salesperson um, is out the window. That That is short-lived and, and is not a path to success. What is a path to success is a salesperson who really uh, starts to understand um, the customer's business, uh, starts to understand um, the challenges that they're facing, can really put themselves in the shoes of the customer. And um, that salesperson is going to excel. So it's um, it's really um favored, I think, a probably uh, different profile of salesperson than maybe some of the stereotypes um, and favored things like uh, a high degree of intellectual curiosity, uh, analytic, an analytical mind. Um, some of the best salespeople and sales leaders that I know have backgrounds in engineering, for example. Um, so the concept of sort of a, a salesperson coming in, lighting up the room, you know, being the most outgoing, extroverted person in the room, that um, I, that really has shifted and changed. Um, it's uh, it, it's now, I think, 
much more favorable to someone who is potentially introverted, thoughtful, uh, and can really understand the customer's business and how the solution that they're bringing to the table can help the customer. Uh, salespeople that are really deeply focused on helping their customers earn the right to uh, to sell product to their customers and earn trust. And that trust, uh, developing that trust is, uh, is really key to success, real genuine trust. I was interested to hear you that you're talking about information and it kind of leads me on to my next question, which is obviously technology over the last couple of months has become just so much more important in connecting people um, and obviously there's some huge technologies like revolutions coming. Um, do you see technologies such as big data or AI, for example, impacting your industry? And how do you think it's going to look like in the future? Yeah, I, 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 I think it does, you know, and that's you already see it in action in some ways. You know, <clears throat> there are great companies like, let's say, Drift. Um, that are uh, using chatbots to uh, engage potential buyers who hit your website in a, in a much more meaningful uh, and helpful way than a contact me form, you know, that you fill out and hit submit and hope goes, you know, you, you hope it goes to the right person. Um, and, and the key there is that it's that it's helpful, you know, it's thoughtful and it's really designed to benefit um, the customer and allow the customer to research and approach uh, an interesting product or, or company that they're interested in, in a way that fits for them and is comfortable for them. Um, so I think that that's a good example of how uh, AI is, is changing sales. And really the, the theme that I think about um, for the next several years is the humanization of sales. Um, you, big data and AI, I think uh, they're going to help us as sales professionals do a better job of ensuring that we're engaging with the right customers, um, customers that have a problem that our product can solve, uh, customers that are interested or ready uh, to buy as opposed to, you know, not uh, ready to engage and, and you know, uh, feeling harassed by salespeople. So I think it's going to help streamline and, and really um, uh, decrease the friction between buyers and sellers. So that's going to be the great outcome, I believe, of uh, AI and, um, and big data. There are other examples too, tools like Kong and Chorus, which help you, you know, uh, record calls, analyze calls, and almost watch, you know, game film, if you will, uh, of um, of your sales calls, so that you can get better, uh, better as a team, and do a better job of um, engaging with the right customers at the right time, with the right product. So we've talked a little bit about the past and we talked a little bit about what the future of sales might look like, but I'm really interested to hear about 2020 um, because obviously there's just been so much change in the world. Um, so with so many travel restrictions in the world, have you had to move your sales processes online? Have you had to change um, the way you do global sales? And is it possible to strike up the same connections when you're working virtually, do you think? Yeah, so uh, there are about four uh, question, good questions. Sorry. Packed, 
that packed into that one. Um, <clears throat> yeah, look, uh, the, the, this, this is un- unprecedented. I've, I've certainly, uh, worked through two prior recessions in, in 2001 and, and 2008. And, um, this one is different on, on many levels. I think, um, on a, on the upside, uh, unlike 2008, where I think there were, you know, there were runs on banks, you know, and people were really concerned about whether credit and, and capitalism would survive. Um, there, there isn't that fear, you know, the market, the markets are still functioning well. Um, but the paradigm of, Hey, I'm just going to fly out to London to go meet this key customer, you know, and, and make sure everything's fine. Like that is gone pretty much. Uh, and will be for some time, uh, I think. So that that reliance on the personal connection, um, we're we're having to work around it. Um, the great news is, uh, in terms of immediate connectivity, um, video capabilities, where we have technology that can help us almost replace that. At the end of the day, nothing can replace the concept of, you know, sharing a meal with someone or, you know, shaking someone's hand. Um, I hope we get back to that um, as soon as possible. On the other hand, what it has opened up is the ability to, you know, look at different geographies where maybe it was too expensive to put a salesperson in that geography uh, and say, hey, gosh, we we can now sell to that geography just as effectively as any other geography because um, everything is remote. So I think it's um, I think it's opened up people's eyes in terms of um, being more location flexible. Um, I think it's accelerated uh, remote work which at the end of the day, it's painful right now, but I think long-term will be good because so many uh, of these big cities where great um, great employers are hubbed are so expensive. Um, and now you see employers that are actually providing uh, employees with incentives to move out of some of those hubs. So I think it's really accelerated the remote work trend, which I think is healthy for us overall. Um, and, um, but... It, it definitely is uh, challenging and you have to work, uh, I think, extra hard to make a great connection with someone when you can't um, shake their hand or share a glass of wine or, or share a meal with them. And is that the same experience you have with leading your team virtually? It sounds like you're quite involved in your team. Um, and has it, has it been difficult to switch into working remotely or um, is it a similar situation? Um, I love to travel and, and, you know, we had, for example, a, a great office in New York and I would be out there once a month and, and, and there is uh, true power in what Hewlett and Packard <clears throat> called management by walking around, right? They, they, they coined that phrase and they were really one of the first great companies to, where you know, nobody had offices. Everybody was, had sort of an equal cube and, they would spend time just kind of walking around and bumping into engineers and finding out, oh, wow, this project is stuck. You know, hey, let me dive in here and, and see what's going on. So there's real power in that. 
Um, and that helps build uh, trust and confidence. And um, it's much easier, I think, to be vulnerable, you know, and ask for help if somebody's, you know, sitting there with you than, uh, than if it's remote. So, you, you know, for now, the reality is that's gone. I think that the key to success when that's the case is frequent communication using a variety of channels. At, at the end of the day, you can still ha- have many of the effects of management by walking around, by communicating frequently with your team and having a, a sense of, gosh, I, I haven't had a one-on-one with so-and-so recently. We've had to skip because we've had customer calls. I'm just going to send a text, check in, see how they're doing. Hey, this team, uh, this overseas team, they always felt disconnected anyway. And now I can't get out there once a quarter. Let me, you know, set up a Slack channel with them and make sure that they are um, feeling connected. So that omni-channel sort of frequent communication and checking in more often than you would uh, if you if you actually had trips planned out there, I think is really, really important. And Kind of on the same tone, you spoke quite a lot about the geographics, how COVID has allowed us to kind of, in a weird way, be more international because you don't have to travel. Or there's new technologies that allow you to um, talk to people from across the world more easily. Um, but what do you think about sales techniques all over the world? Do you think you need to change them for different cultures or do the same kind of things work everywhere? Or is it more differentiated by the industry that you're selling to um there's a a, a give one um one reading recommendation out i'll give you another reading recommendation which i really love it's a bit anachronistic um because i think it was written in you know maybe like the late 60s or early 70s um but it's called you can negotiate anything by herb cohen and uh, Herb was uh, a lead negotiator for, I think, three or four presidents. Um, and he writes a really wonderful book about the, the differences, the cultural differences of negotiating deals in different parts of the world, um, as well as uh, actually negotiating for a new refrigerator at, at a Sears Roebuck store. <laughs> um, so it's a really fun, uh, fun read. Um, Look, at the end of the day, I think there are some elements that uh, are universal and um, things like great communication um, and uh, honesty and transparency and empathy translate into any culture and can build trust. And you you need that as a foundation uh, to do business. Um, if you have someone who's communicative, responsive, transparent, like that is going to feel better in just about any, uh, any, any culture or any culture that I'm, I'm aware of. Um, other than that, uh, every culture is different every, and, and you really need to be sensitive to and understand that, um, that culture in order to uh, succeed in it. So the better that you can understand um, their priorities, their manner of doing business, what puts them in their comfort zone, what puts them outside their comfort zone, um, uh, the the better off you'll be. Um, and there is um, there 
uh, is a tendency to view things, I think, through sort of, a you know, uh, if you're in Silicon Valley, there's a tendency to view things through that Silicon Valley lens, right? Hence my opening where I said, good morning, you know, and then sort of paused and went, wait, it's not morning for you. So I think we it, it can be a challenge. We have to to step outside our zone, understand um, that culture and that method of doing business and make sure that we're being um, really responsive and understanding uh, to that uh, to that geography and to that culture. Well, thank you so much. That was really interesting. But I have one last question for you. Um, you sure. recommended two books, but apart from those books, what advice would you give to an MBA who wants to embark on a sales career in 2020? Uh, yeah, the, so the advice I would give to an MBA about to uh, embark on their career and considering sales is um, spend some time taking a look at sales as a career path. Uh, and don't don't bring sort of your assumptions or baggage or stereotypes to it uh, because it's it's changed. Uh, I think it's um, a incredibly interesting and uh, sort of intellectually challenging career. Uh, it's one that can be very re- rewarding. Uh, so if someone has a sort of filter where they like the idea of getting paid for performance, um, it's a it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful path. And at the end of the day, um, uh, I believe that uh, if you want to, um, let's say, start uh, start a company someday, be a CEO someday, be a VC uh, at the end of the day, just about any path that you go will at some point involve an ability to sell. So one of the fascinating things that you see at, you know, let's say leading management consulting firms or leading law firms is people that spend their career, their early part of their career are sort of doers. They execute on projects. And then at some point, if they're lucky enough to get promoted to or successful enough to get promoted to partner, they have to start bringing business in for the firm, you know? And so for uh, someone who has had some experience selling and understands what it's like to actually um, bring business in the door early in their career, it can be uh, a wonderful foundation. At the end of the day, a VC is selling entrepreneurs who have a great idea and are probably getting multiple term sheets on working with their VC firm. Um, So some experience as an operator uh, in a go-to-market role, uh, you probably have an advantage over somebody who doesn't. So I think it can be a great foundation for a career. It can be a great full-time career as well. Um, And um, and the sky's the limit in terms of earning potential and, and leadership potential. I think that's some great advice. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much to Shep for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to him. If you'd like some more thought leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out for the next Ambition podcast. <laughs>